Welcome to Parenting Great Kids. This is episode number 176. Wow. And I'm your host, Dr. Meg Meeker. I just want to take a minute and thank all of you in my wonderful audience. We are approaching 8 million downloads and it's all because of you. You listen, you tell your friends about the podcast, and I hope that you find encouragement, encouragement to stress less about your kids, to enjoy life a little bit more with your kids. Well, we're going to be talking about that discomfort that many of us feel in our culture. We live with a certain tension and sometimes we feel overwhelmed. We look for answers everywhere to help calm us, but often the answers we find don't do it. Friends, the only way to find calm is in Christ. He is the one who relieves the underlying unrest and that angst that many of us feel. As parents, we need a strong faith to help us navigate the trials that we face so we can help our kids navigate their trials. Well, my guest on the show today is Ken Harrison. Ken is the chairman and CEO of Promise Keepers. He also serves as Waterstones CEO. Waterstones is a Christian foundation that helps those who can give to foundations, advisors, and ministries to provide trusted counsel and innovative giving strategies. Well, Ken has written a new book, A Daring Faith in a Cowardly World. This book's a topic of our conversation today, and I hope that you'll be encouraged as he challenges you to act on your faith. So let's get to my interview now with Ken Harrison. Well, Ken, I'm excited for our interview to talk about your brand new book, and I appreciate you coming on today. Well, you know, I'm a huge fan of you, so it's a pretty big privilege and honor to be on your show. Well, thank you. Um, you wrote a book, fabulous book, provocative, A Daring Faith in a Cowardly World, Live a Life Without Waste, Regret, or Anything Unfinished. Um, wow, that's a pretty tall order. Why <laughs> this book now? I mean, I, I could sort of understand, but I want to hear from your mind and your thinking why you wrote the book now. Well, you know, I took over Promise Keepers four and a half years ago, mm-hmm. and what I saw are men leaving the church in droves. And so I started asking them, why? Why are you leaving the church? And it became a pretty clear thing I was seeing across the board that there seemed to be a lack of justice. There seemed to be mm-hmm. a lack of a point to your life. And so I think we've gone too far with this cheap grace idea that Dietrich Bonhoeffer came up with, which is, you know, you say this prayer and then you're in the club, and then there's no other reason to live anymore because Jesus, basically, I don't think pastors are saying this um, intentionally, but the message men were hearing is, um, you're a bad person, but God loves you anyway. Now go and try not to be so bad, but don't worry about it because he'll still love you. And I started realizing, okay, if we take a look at scripture, there's two things I always say to men when we talk about this. If Jesus gave the entire message of the gospel in John 3:16, for God so loved the world. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's the whole gospel. So then what were all the rest of his words about? What's all this stuff in Matthew five through seven about if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out of your head or in Luke, when he says, if you're not willing to say goodbye to all your possessions, you're not worthy of me. Well, wait a minute. I thought all it took was, was belief. And so then we start to get put on the right road. when We go to Ephesians two, eight, and nine, which is, another gospel message where we're told that 
by grace you're saved through faith, and this not of yourself, it's a gift of God, lest no man should boast. So we're completely saved by grace, and even the faith we believe in Jesus with is a gift. But the next verse, Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which were prepared beforehand mm -hmm. that we should walk in them. Oh, okay, so you were saved and you had a very specific mission God created at the beginning of time for Meg Meeker to accomplish and for Ken Harrison to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And for everybody who's listening to this, based on the gifts he gave you, we will be judged not for salvation, that was by grace, but we will be judged, 2 Corinthians 5.10, based on what we did with that grace. We'll be rewarded for mm -hmm. having succeeded, and we will be punished. Now, all you have to do is look in the end of Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, not for sin, but for being lazy. Right. Wow. <laughs> That's I've never heard anybody put it that way, but you're absolutely like for being lazy. You know, we've heard that, you know, if we are sort of a lukewarm well, I don't want to say fire because fire isn't lukewarm, but God will spit us out of his mouth if we're not close enough and not doing what he wants to do. You talk about a daring faith in a cowardly world. So let's talk about daring faith. Is What do you mean by daring faith? Well, Jesus tells us we need to lay down our lives for him, right? So back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus is saying, if you want to be holy, this is what it looks like, right? And so he says the beginning of it. So you have to remember, he pulls all his disciples away from the crowds, goes away from them, and he's only teaching the 12. And he's teaching the 12 about here's how you become holy. If you want to have all the power and the joy that comes from a godly life, this is how you do it. And that, that's what that's about. And then he, he proceeds to give this unbelievably difficult recipe for, for doing that. And then he says, don't worry about it. You just take each day as it comes and I'll create holiness in you as you choose to die to yourself daily for me. And that's what he starts going on and on. You will be rewarded. You will be rewarded. He says in Revelation 22, 12, one of the last verses in the Bible, I'm coming quickly, behold, and my reward is with me to give to each person what they've done. Whoa. And how does he tell us to live our lives? Like a soldier fighting in a war, intent on victory, like an athlete who gives all to win the prize. And over and over and over again, we see crowns, prizes, reigning with Christ, if, if we decide to die to ourselves every day and follow him. So by your last statement, if we do this, are you saying that maybe your salvation can be revoked if you don't live like a fighter? No. So um, in Matthew chapter 24, so, I mean, Jesus says, no one can take you out of my hand. When you're saved, you're saved. And nothing you do can get rid of your salvation. I'm glad you asked that question. But uh, Matthew 24, Jesus is going on. The disciples go to him and say, what's going to happen in the end times? So he goes on to this dual prophecy. He's telling them go back and forth. He's going to what's going to happen to them in their lifetimes. When Titus, the Roman general, is going to come into Jerusalem in AD 70 and kill a million Jews, which was like half the population of the Jews in the whole world at that time. Horrific Holocaust that was going to come on them in AD 70. He was also predicting some things that would occur when he comes back again, it's still to happen in the future. When he gets done saying all those things, he then says, the kingdom of heaven is like a slave whose master goes away in a long journey. So we're the slaves. Jesus is the master. He went away on a long journey. 
Now that slave, if he's found serving God when he returns, I tell you the truth, he will be rewarded, there it is again, for his good works. However, if that slave says in his heart, so he has a choice, my master's gone on a long journey, I don't know when he's going to be back. So he eats and drinks with drunkards, and he beats his fellow slaves. I tell you the truth, that slave will be cut into pieces, thrown into the outer darkness with the hypocrites. Okay, so Jesus says, this is what's going to happen in the future. And then he says, all of you are like a slave. So Jesus says to the disciples, today I no longer call you slaves. I'll call you my friends because a friend doesn't know what his master is doing. So Jesus is saying earlier, you start off when you first get saved as a slave of God. When you get to a level of obedience, he calls you friend. But now he's saying, okay, so then there's this slave. This slave has a choice. That slave can either be serving God when he returns, and if he does, he'll be rewarded. Or, if not, cut into pieces. What does that mean? Well, we read in Hebrews that the word of God is like a two-edged sword, mighty enough to cut soul and spirit, bone and sinew. So he's cut into pieces by the truth of the word of God. Also, over and over again, we're told that Jesus comes and fights against the nations with the sword that's in his mouth, the word of God. So he's cut into pieces by the truth of the word of God. He's thrown into the outer darkness. What does that mean? Because this is a Christian, right? It means outside the wedding feast of the Lamb. So the Christians who have been holy and sanctified will be in the wedding feast with Jesus, and those who haven't will be outside. And Jesus is going to go into that in more detail in the next chapter in Matthew 25 with all these parables describing the ten virgins. The five wise ones go into the wedding feast, the five foolish ones are left out, and then the three slaves, the two that serve him are rewarded, and the one that doesn't, he says, you wicked, lazy slave, and he's thrown out to the outer darkness again. So the outer darkness. And then the last one is weeping and gnashing of teeth. We assume that is hell. That's not. Weeping and gnashing of teeth in the Near East always means sorrow, and gnashing of teeth means anger. So you're angry at yourself for your wasted life and sorrowful because you're, you're, you're locked out. You see the wedding feast. You see Abraham and Esther and Paul and Peter, but you're outside because you lived your life for yourself. And then the last thing is eating and drinking drunkards and beating his fellow slaves. Those are illustrations for eating and drinking drunkards means just living the good life, just worried about himself and not anybody else. And beating his fellow slaves means getting other people to do what's your responsibility to do. <laughs> this is really hard stuff to swallow, particularly if you don't know scripture very well. It's, um, it's very, very, very sobering. So in the first part of your book, you talked about what you're, that we're called to a daring faith. And then the second part of your book is living that out. And you talk about losing ourselves in him and becoming blessed and staying salty. Um, you know, my question is, I kind of know this is alluding to being a coward and, and it's sort of the antidote for being a coward. So how are we cowardly in the United States in 2022, Christians. I'm, okay, I'm talking about Christians who want to follow Christ. We're cowardly. How? And then talk about the second part of your book. Mm. <laughs> so I define cowardice in the book as not as disobeying God because of fear, and I describe courage as obeying God despite fear. We're all afraid. Everybody's afraid of something at some point but are you going to move forward and do the right thing? So let's talk about what's not cowardly to give a contrast, Meg. You're someone who's not cowardly. You're someone who could be 
making a lot of money in your practice and having everybody pat you on the back and telling you how wonderful you are because you're excellent at what you do. You write great books. Yet you choose to stand for truth, which brings scorn with it and brings a lack of popularity and costs you money. And this is exactly what a daring faith looks like. And I know you and I talked offline about you wish you did more. Well, that, that simply comes with living more for Christ, right? Moving ourselves from who is our audience and what is our identity. When you see yourself as a daughter of Christ and your only goal is to make him proud of you, and every one of us is on that road. Every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us has drawbacks. I find it easier to be bold because I started off life as a Los Angeles policeman in the era of Rodney King. I was in the middle of South Central LA. I went through all that, and I saw that when you stand for righteousness, when you care for the oppressed, when you stand up and plead the widow's cause, as it says in Isaiah 117, the world will hate you. I had people trying to kill me, riots, all that stuff. So I learned as a very young man that if I stand for what's right, it doesn't necessarily come back in immediate rewards in the moment, but it does come with peace to my soul and a closer relationship with the Lord. You're seeing that as you move forward and you're saying, well, I want to get more and more that way. Well, we all do. And how do you do that? You make every choice every day. That's what picking up your cross daily and following me, Christ means, is we're not looking forward and saying, oh my gosh, I could never be like that person. Because the devil's going to be there whispering in your ear going, oh, you failed before, you failed, you failed. How dare you? Who do you think you are? Don't you remember that time you did this? Jesus says, you keep your eye on the present. You just obey me in this moment. You don't have to be the Apostle Paul. You just have to be Meg Meeker doing the right thing right now. And the accumulation of those choices will either make you a saint that he is so glad that, that welcomes you in and you walk into that throne room with your head held high and say, Jesus, where are my crowns? Where are my rewards? You said, if I suffer with you, I'll reign with you. How many cities do I get to be in charge of? Or you choose not to. You choose to your flesh. You choose to compromise. You choose to not stand for him. And you will re reap those rewards. In this life, you'll have broken families, broken marriage, not have the joy of Christ, not have the power of Christ. And in the future, you'll face the judgment of being outside the wedding feast. It sounds hard, but it doesn't have to be. It's just daily making the choice to follow Christ. Right. And that's hard. I mean, that's hard. <laughs> um, so specifically, how are we cowards now? I mean, our culture... Before we got going, you were saying that we're bullied. We're all bullied in America, particularly Christians. I totally agree with you. And I know where I feel bullied. And I know where I feel I should be bolder in what I'm saying. But I think, oh, gosh, if I say that, I'm going to lose my medical license. or I'm going to, you know, have people write me hate mail or whatever. So specifically, where are we bullied and in those places, how are we cowards when we're bullied? Because I think everybody in the United States feels bullied. I think, every, yes. you know, we all feel bullied. It's like, don't do this or don't do this or else. Not really knowing what the or else is, other than having people write, you know, horrible things about us on the Internet or whatever. What are we afraid of? How are we being bullied? And how do we work against that, change it? There's so much that comes to mind. I hope I answer all those questions with everything that's in my mind. If I, help me if I forget some of them. When I used to be an expert witness when I was a policeman and the attorney asked me like five questions, I would, 
have to have the attorney ask me because they're all great questions and I want to make sure I answer them all. Um, my wife, I talk about her quite a bit in the book. I have great admiration for my wife, Elliot. One of the things that she does is she has a massive following on Facebook because she's constantly just giving scripture, um, standing up for what's right. It's amazing. She was just talking to me today about how so many people from our high school 35 years ago that are broken are coming back to her because they see her on Facebook to read Bible verses. And it's amazing the effect she's having on people's lives that we, we haven't talked to in 35 years. So Facebook can be a force for good, right? But how many people does she have? She gets hatred. I mean, people just viscerally come after her. And all she does is post Bible verses or nice quotes or something. How many people private message her and say, you know, I really agree with you. I really support what you said. Well, it's like, well, then why aren't you putting it out there for, for everybody to see? Why are you letting Elliot take all these hits while you private messenger? I'm on your side. Say it publicly. Stand with her, right? So that's a form of the cowardice that we see, and it's also a form of the courage you see in my wife, right? Why is this such a big deal? Meg, I love a quote by my friend John Stone Street. What was unthinkable 10 years ago is unquestionable today. Every little girl goes through terrible angst with puberty, some more than others, depending on their support system. But I teach men, obviously, all the time, and I tell them, you need to be much more empathetic with your wives because a man's body pretty much never changes, and a woman's body is constantly changing. And in fact, you think about puberty. A man in puberty, basically, a boy becomes a man. He gets hairy, he gets faster, stronger, and, and he's deep gets his voice gets deeper, and he's very happy. Think about what happens to a girl. Mm -hmm. well, suddenly getting a menstrual cycle and breasts and boys start looking at her weird. So it's a very traumatic sign for many girls. Before 2012, there was not a single case of gender dysphoria in prepubescent child. Right. Yeah, I figured you'd know that. Now they're suddenly <laughs> there all the time. So what happened? In the whole history of the world, was everything always covered up? Or did something happen in 2012 that suddenly is being promoted? So we have our girls being groomed by perverts, by freaks, mm -hmm. by horrible, evil people who are coming to a girl who's in a bad spot and saying, oh, maybe you're really a boy. Here's an idea. Let's cut your breasts off. Let's give you drugs mm -hmm. that will make sure you never have a normal life. When you're 12, mm -hmm. you can't even get your ears pierced without your parents' permission in many states. But let's make it so that your body is permanently deformed. What are we doing to stand up against that? Are we willing to give all? How many girls might we save? And I know I'm touching a lot of nerves. How important is it to you? And so how many lives is it worth for you to lay down your life? Mm -hmm. how, how much discomfort is it worth? Um, so that's where I'm talking about courage and cowardice. Where are you at? And I would say we have to understand our identity in Christ and that we are in a battle against abject, total evil. And we are trying to give God's grace to people who are so hungry and so desperate and so hurting. And that's what you do every day for a living. So you know what I'm talking about more than anybody. But what are the common person doing? And so I often tell people, hey, I, you know, they say, I, I can't do this great thing. Well, God had a specific purpose for you and he armed you for it. And your specific purpose may be to raise really good kids. It may be mm -hmm. to in your home, to say, what are you guys learning in school today? Let's talk about that. What's the Bible say about that? Let's grab Meg, Meg Meeker's book and see what it says about that particular issue. It may be mm -hmm. that you get involved at your school council. 
what are you teaching our kids in my in our accounts? Holy cow, are you kidding me? I'm going to get my friends together, and we're going to get involved, and we're going to start fighting against this perversion that's in our school district. Might be the city council. Might be doing all kinds of huge things. And I do, I've used this as an example. Um, here in where I live in Douglas County, Colorado, we had our school board taken over by communists. And, you know, you vote, you just see these names, and there's nothing around them. You don't know who to vote for. And that's what happened is that in this conservative county, these people got elected that were pushing, it's like communist ideas. There was a revolt here, and it was on national news last year. People may remember it, where the whole city council was or the school board was thrown out, and conservative parents came in and took over and changed everything. How did that happen? You know how that happened? Six friends who were high school buddies in their mid-30s were sitting around drinking beer one night and said, you know, we're all good guys. We all have kids. Maybe we could get involved. There are now, this town has 80,000 people in it. They have 2,000 dads who are a member of their group. They just started three years ago, three guys sitting around drinking beer. They changed the school board, and now 2,000 dads are involved in kids' lives, helping the poor, helping single moms to raise their kids. Just, just a couple of guys sitting around doing something. You don't have to be Ronald Reagan. You can just be a, a normal mom raising your kids who says, I'm going to get involved because they're not doing this anymore on my watch. I don't know if I answered all your questions, but... <laughs> <laughs> I like those guys in Louisiana who, yeah, um, right. I think it was Louisiana, who said, we're done with all this violence in our school. We're done. And they just got together and they just showed up at the school and they started walking around and boom, the violence went away. Parents, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Ken Harrison. We need to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. Welcome back to Parenting Great Kids. Today, my guest is Ken Harrison. So you're absolutely right. Sometimes all it takes is for a good man or a good woman to say, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to start really simple. I'm just going to show up places. This is what I'm going to do. And I think that we we really are afraid to do that because I'm convinced that you know, 90% of America agree with you and I that we should not be giving kids hormones and we should not be um, doing, you know, these dramatic things and kids to, to transition them. But they're afraid to say so because, you know, they're afraid of the backlash on their kids, for instance, you know, and, and there's so much pressure. And I kind of think, where are these people pressuring them? And they're not the majority of Americans. So how is it that the minority has so much power over the majority? Because maybe it's just the majority needs to just stand up and say, I don't care what you say. This is what I'm going to do. You know, you had said something earlier um, that I meant to address and it, it, it comes up again now. You can tell the truth because the truth says, declare me. And everybody else can declare their thing, and I will stand up. I will, I will be recognized by the wise people. Lies say everybody else has to shut up, and only I get to talk, right? So that's the cancel culture, right? The cancel culture, they know they're liars. Maybe, maybe they know it consciously, maybe they know it subconsciously, but everybody shut up. I'm going to run around canceling speech. What does the truth say? Freedom of speech. Everybody say what you want. You want to say garbage, say garbage. The marketplace will figure it out. So what are we fearful of? You'd ask that question. That's a question I don't, I can't answer because I, I've often wondered what are people so afraid of? But I think 
as I've pondered the issue, partly people are afraid that God really won't mete out justice, that somehow they're going to get screwed and the evil person's going to get away with it all. And we actually see that over and over again in the Bible. We have lots of prophets writing that, Lord, all these people are doing all this stuff and your people are suffering and what's going on? Where are you? I mean, that's a lot in the Bible and God coming back and answering that question. And what he says is in the long run, to you people, your life is like a wisp of smoke. Where he says, you're like a blade of grass that springs up in the morning and withers in the noonday sun. Your life is so short in, in eternity, and you are living in eternity. You're locked in time and space right now. You're locked into a body. But if you place your faith in me, and all it took was belief, by the way, someday you will be released from that body. And what you did at this very tiny little part of history where you had to live by faith, I said this in my book, the angels look on us with fascination because we're the only beings in all the universe that live by faith. And so that's why he's going to reward us so greatly if we stick with it. So here's what he's saying. Understand, I am a God of justice and mercy. And mercy triumphs over justice, thank God, because every one of us deserves to be condemned. But I still am a God of justice. And those who have lived for me will be rewarded forever. And those who have not lived for me will be punished for a time, it would appear in the Bible, not for not forever. I'm not saying purgatory. I'm just saying that's what the Bible says. Well, you know, really, as Christians, when we think about that, when you say we're locked in time and space, you know, when we think about what we're afraid of, and I'll be honest, I mean, I felt it too. I felt myself sort of holding back and saying, I don't want to say anything about this because my friends are going to say this, or my kids are going to say this, or I'm, I don't, I, I don't worry about looking like an idiot. I worry about the repercussion on my family or something. I don't really know, honestly and truly. I don't really know. I think that we're part of the bullying process is to create fear in us that even though we don't know what will happen, something bad will happen. And that sort of keeps us locked in a certain place. So if we stand up and say, I'm not going to be coward and I'm gonna deal with the repercussions. That's just for a time, but in all eternity, there's my reward and God has justice. Why would we be afraid now? Because it's really for a very short period of time. So towards the end of the book, you talk about the rewards that we're gonna get. And we know we're gonna get rewards, but you talk about a better resurrection. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, it's really is a tough, I mean, Jesus does challenge us to some really tough stuff. And one of the things he says is, if you love your wife or your husband or your child or your mother or father more than me, you're not worthy of me. Ooh, right? And I think that's addressing that issue of you stand for me first. You let me worry about everybody else. I would also say, though, that sometimes Christians, um, we can be fools. We can run our mouths at the wrong time. And so... A lot of what you're saying, Meg, is simply exercising discretion. It's not always best. Sometimes you gotta, you gotta be wise. Not, it's not always a time to fight. Sometimes it's a time to be gracious. Sometimes it's a time to let the fool say what they're going to. You gotta pick your battles with humility and grace. And we also need to really empathize with people. Um, you know, I, I've used some harsh words and I've, I've used perverts and things like that with some of these ones that are grooming our kids because I get passionate. But also, even while we fight that evil, we want to think about, well, how did they get there? And maybe they need my love. Maybe this person is trying to hurt kids 
yeah, I need to fight against that. But at the same time, they also maybe need to be loved by me too. And, and to figure out maybe he or she was abused when they were young. And, you know, what's the old cliche, uh, uh, the abused abuse or whatever the word is, however that goes, abusers abuse or something. Meaning people who have been abused tend to grow up to be people who abuse unless someone breaks that cycle. And that's what you do. Right. You asked me about the better resurrection. Um, so Paul says, just like stars in the heavens vary by their glory, so does our resurrection vary. So people have different levels of resurrection. Um, Hebrews chapter 11 is God's hall of faith. And it's really interesting because in his hall of faith, he doesn't have the people in there that you would think. The people in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 only have two things in common. Every one of them is really screwed up, but repented. And none of them ever backed down from a fight. God is a real fan of courage. But near the end, the writer of Hebrews, whom we don't know who that is, says that some people refused to be released. That is, they were given the option, deny God and we'll let you go. And they refused because they wanted a better resurrection. So these people withstood torture, it says in the Bible, specifically because they wanted to have the best resurrection they could. So we will not all have the same resurrection. We will not be resurrected up to the same level of glory. That resurrection, the quality of it, all of us who are put our faith in Christ will not be condemned, as it says in the Bible. We will be saved, not condemned. But our glory of our resurrection will be vastly different. And again, going to that judgment, Second Corinthians 5.10, that we'll all stand before God's judgment seat to be judged for the deeds done in the body, whether good or worthless, it says. So are you saying there are different places in heaven for different levels of holiness? That's what it would appear. Um, we know that there are different levels of mansions. We know there are different levels of responsibilities. We know that in Revelation it says that there will be the new Jerusalem and God will dwell in that temple. And then other nations will come and trade with the new Jerusalems. Well, who are they? Who are those people that are coming to the New Jerusalem? So certainly it will appear that our experiences in heaven will be vastly different. Also, Paul and Jesus both exhort us, do not let people steal your rewards. Do not let them steal your crowns. Well, how would they steal our crowns? Well, I think when we're really holy, Jesus says it's like walking on the narrow road. Wide is the highway that leads to destruction. He's talking about Christians wasting our lives. Narrow and hard is the road that leads to holiness. Well, there's a lot of people who love us who are going to say, why do you have to be so hard on yourself? Why do you get up early and pray for everybody that you know? Why do you read the Bible all the time? Why, why do you give so much money of your way? Why don't you just keep, you know, I, I know a guy who, um, he gives away a million dollars a year. He's not a super wealthy mm -hmm. guy. He's obviously making a lot of money to give away a million dollars a year. But he was telling me that he was looking for a lake house in Texas and he couldn't afford the lake house he wanted in Texas, he had to go to Oklahoma because it was a lot cheaper there. Now this guy, if he stopped giving away a million dollars a year for a couple of years, or he only gave away $500,000 a year, he could get the lake house he wants. He's choosing because he wants to be generous for the Lord to have a lesser place vacation home. I mean, these are first world problems, but a lesser right. place so that he can continue giving away so much money to the poor and the needy. There's a guy on the narrow road who says, I want everything that God has to offer me. And a lot of people may come alongside him and go, dude, come on, man. I mean, there's lots of reasons why you could go get the better house in Texas, that those are the people that would steal his rewards by encouraging him to take an easier road. 
It sounds like you're walking frighteningly close to works and that it's by our works that we get to a higher place in heaven. But that's very unlike what Jesus told us. So that's not really what you're saying, is it? That it's it's by doing our good works. I am saying that our salvation is completely by grace. We have nothing to do with it. But after we're saved, what we do will determine our place in heaven. And Jesus said, you'll be judged by your works. People skip over some of these verses and they because they don't make sense to them. Right. So, but it's not necessarily random acts of kindness. No. Or is it? Okay. No. So he always says he's, he's looking at the heart. Jesus is not looking for religion. He's not looking for someone to do things out of obligation. He's looking for people who do things out of love. So I do say in the book, in order to be rewarded, two things have to have occurred. You have to be a disciple of Christ and you have to have done it out of love, not to be seen by somebody, not to impress anybody. Eyes focused clearly on Christ. Remember, I quoted um, Revelation 22, 12. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to reward each person according to what they've done. So mm -hmm. salvation, not from us. We all deserve to be condemned. What we do with mm -hmm. our salvation will be rewarded, and there will be justice based on that. Yeah. Well, thanks for the clarity. Because I, I, I just, yes, and I threw out that question because I didn't want people to misunderstand that you were saying salvation is from doing a lot of nice stuff. We only have a couple minutes left, Ken, and I know that there are a lot of um, men and women listening out there who are thinking, boy, this has been tough to listen to. I think I'm ready to turn <laughs> it off. Can you just me? Whoa. Um, but if you could give two or three words of advice or things for people to do in order to have a more daring faith in the midst of cowardice, where would they want to be cowards? Specifically, what can you tell parents to do two or three things as a takeaway? So let me lighten it up a little bit. Um, I think maybe drive the truth home, but lighten it up. What does God say his relationship is to us who have put our faith in him? He says this is a father to a child, right? He, he mm -hmm. could have chosen any relationship he wanted. He could have said master to a slave. He could have said anything. He said father to a child. Okay, how do we as parents want our kids to act with us? So when, we're, when our kids are young, we would want them to crawl up into our lap, wrap them around, our, their arms around us and say, mommy, daddy, I love you. And I want to listen to you because I love you. Not out of obligation, not out of some religion. I just want to hear what you have to say. And by the way, because I love you so much, I want to take care of my brothers and sisters. I would never let them suffer. I would ne never let anybody abuse them. And then what does Jesus say? All this complicated stuff, you really want to make it simple. Jesus says the entire law can be summed in two commands. Love God and love each other, period. So we see from salvation we have unmerited acceptance by God. He says, you don't deserve it, but I love you and I give you my salvation. But what we don't have is unmerited approval. Because just as we realize that with our kids, if they come to us and they're doing what we told them to do, they're acting in a healthy way, what happens? We have greater intimacy in our relationship. We want to shower them with rewards. We want to give them the inheritance. We want to give them the car to use, right? When our kids are a mess, when they curse our names, when they hurt their brothers and sisters, what do we have? We have interruption in our, in our relationship. We don't have closeness and intimacy with them. 
though we as parents yearn for it, we want that, but they say, no, I'm going to do my own thing. And so then they don't have approval from us and they don't get as much stuff from us, right? In a healthy relationship. And what, how does Jesus then illustrate his relationship to us? He says, we're just like the prodigal son. The prodigal son parable is about a Christian, not about a non-Christian. And that Christian leaves and curses his father and does all kinds of horrible things. And when he finally turns back to his father, where does he find him? Standing at the gate looking for his child. And that child comes, turns towards him. The father runs to the child and grabs him and says, kill the fat and calf, my child has come home. That's the father we serve. So everybody listening to this, feeling this, that's just a lot. It's so hard. It's frustrating. Jesus said really hard, frustrating words in Matthew 5 through 7. And then he says, but here's our relationship, father to child. And no matter how bad you screw up, the moment you repent, I will run to you and pick you up in my arms and say, let's get back to the family business. Let's get back to going out there and taking care of others. And so I know it's hard and I, and I want it to sound hard because that's how Jesus put it. But on the other hand, it's easy. If we just remember to take day by day and remember that he loves us no matter what, he will never forsake us. He will never condemn us. But like a good father, he disciplines people who are screwing up, it says in Hebrews, and he rewards those people who are about his business. You know, it's interesting because you, you talk about the two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart and then love your neighbors yourself. And people are, okay, I got it. Oh, really? <laughs> that's, a, that's a really, really, really tall order. Um, my guest has been Ken Harrison, and the book is A Daring Faith in a Cowardly World, Live a Life Without Waste, Regret, or Anything Unfinished. Wow. It's a great read. It's a hard read wonderful, important, important book. So I thank you for writing it. And uh, thank you for coming on the podcast today, Ken. It's been a lot of fun. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ken Harrison. All right, let's go over my points to ponder. One, never apologize for your faith. Christians are stereotyped as right-wing conservative kooks who can't think very deeply. This is certainly not true. Some of the most brilliant and humble minds are those of Christians. Mother Teresa, Abdu Murray, C.S. Lewis, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and thousands more. Sadly, there are the very loud Christians who are in the public sphere who are obnoxious and give the rest of us a very bad reputation. Two, be vocal but humble about your beliefs. Let's face it, when anyone feels bullied, they back away. They allow the bullies to get louder and therefore have a stronger voice. If you believe in something strongly, assert it. Be vocal but kind. The only way to stop bullies is to push back, so do it. Three, be proactive. There are many issues facing parents that feel overwhelming. Sex ed in school, social media effects, violence in media, abortion, declining church attendance. Our response is often to throw up our hands and just forget about it, thinking, well, there's nothing we can do. Don't do this. Choose one issue that's close to your heart and find out what you can do to make a change. Find out what your local CareNet office is doing. Insist on reviewing your child's school curriculum. Get involved in your local church. Make a decision. Well, I want to thank my guest, Ken Harrison, today for joining me on the show. 
be sure to check out a copy of his book, A Daring Faith in a Cowardly World. You can find it wherever books are sold. If you want to follow Ken on social media, search for Waterstone in your internet browser. Also, make sure to follow Promise Keepers on social media as well. Just search for Promise Keepers in your internet browser. Now let's recap my three points to ponder. One, never apologize for your faith. Two, be vocal but humble about your beliefs. And three, be proactive. Friends, if you want something uplifting in your day, go to PureFlix and check out my movie, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters. It's just fun. You'll walk away from it feeling so good. And if you need some encouragement, go to meekerparenting.com and always remember, great kids are raised, not born. 